0: Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. For season two, I will be discussing murders from the year 1970 through 1979. Today's story is of a female murderer from 1970. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 1970. In 1970, the average cost for a house was $23,450, with the average income being $9,400. That same year, the phrase, Houston, we've had a problem, started when Apollo 13 spacecraft attempted to land on the moon, but had an unforeseen complication when one of the oxygen tanks exploded. The crew instead looped around the moon and was able to return safely to Earth. Another thing that happened in 1970 was a woman with a pan of hot grease and anger toward her husband. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. A fugitive is a person who is fleeing from custody. Whether it be from jail, a government arrest, government or non-government questioning, vigilante violence, or outraged private individuals, a fugitive from justice, also known as a wanted person, can be a person who is either convicted or accused of a crime and hiding from law enforcement in the state or taking refuge in a different country in order to avoid arrest. It is very shocking to know how many fugitives evade arrest just by jumping state lines. In 2014, an article was published in USA Today exposing just how little fugitives have to fear when it comes to being caught. When a person becomes a fugitive, their case is chronicled in a confidential FBI database that is used by police to track down outstanding warrants. According to the article, In 186,873 of those cases, police indicated that they would not spend the time or money to retrieve the fugitive from another state, a process known as extradition. That's true even if the fugitives are just across a bridge in the state next door. Another 78,878 felony suspects won't be extradited from any place but neighboring states. Police from Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Little Rock, which are all cities with some of the nation's highest crime rates, informed the FBI that about 90% of felony suspects that have jumped state lines would not be pursued. Los Angeles police said they would not extradite 77 people for murder or attempted murder. 141 for robbery, and 84 for sexual assault. USA Today was able to find some of these felons through searching court and enforcement databases, revealing how easy it is to find some. But it seems that police typically won't hunt down these fugitives. Instead, they wait for officers to come across them either through traffic stops or when they are arrested on new charges. But even if they are informed that they have one of the felons in custody, the police usually refuse to take them, as they don't want to pay the cost or jump through the legal hoops required to extradite them back to their state, choosing to let the criminals get away instead. FBI records show that police, prosecutors, and court officials from the state have decided not to collect 93% of the city's wanted felons from any place outside Pennsylvania. From the USA Today investigation, they uncovered every time police officers stop a person on the highway or book him into a jail, they check his name against the FBI's vast fugitive tracking database known as the National Crime Information Center. The system can tell within seconds whether the person is wanted and for what. It'll also tell them how far the agency that wants them is willing to travel to pick them up. A decision that police and prosecutors are required to make in advance. This is the first public account showing the extradition practices of more than 8,100 law enforcement agencies in big cities and small towns throughout the United States. Each state is under its own government, which means they must get permission to bring a fugitive back to their state. This is called extradition, which basically means the U.S. Constitution requires that states turn over fugitives to one another but it doesn't require that the task be simple. Unless a suspect agrees to waive extradition, the signatures of both states' governors and a court order are needed. According to that same article, nationwide, police and prosecutors are becoming less willing to chase suspects into other states as tight budgets force them to further narrow the list of crimes for which they'll extradite. But from 2009 to 2013, Chuck Lowry and Kim Bryant became two names that had all fugitives who committed murder in the Harris County, Houston area, in fear of being caught. This fear was legitimate as District Attorney Patricia Lykos formed the Cold Case Fugitive Apprehension Section of the Harris County District Attorney's Office soon after taking office in 2009. The goal of this section, under the guidance of Assistant District Attorney Russell Turberville, are to get all old case files, 637 files in all, and review them for any leads. Lowry was quoted as saying, We could not have initiated this cold case roundup without Russell's attention to detail. He vetted all the original cases and set up the system to allow us to move forward. Further explaining, I investigate the trail, and Kim gets them back to Harris County. We work side by side. They had some great success during the course of this fugitives cold case unit, whose goal was to help law enforcement through support and information to capture criminals who have been able to avoid justice. They had cases dating back to the 1970s, and it was a tedious job utilizing paper trails and computer databases. Looking through these cases, it seemed in some, the trail did indeed go cold, but in others, there was really no investigation. The Texas District and County Attorneys Association explained in an article on this team that, they speculate that case files can become cold cases for a variety of reasons. All potential leads ran into dead ends. Previous investigators were simply too busy for the immense caseload and had to prioritize which cases to pursue, and some may have been more suitable pocket-warrant cases that just got caught up in the system. Investigator Lowry is a former Houston Police Department sergeant that retired in 2003 and began working as an investigator with the DA's office in 2005. Then he was picked up to be an investigator to search for fugitives. Looking through a case file for Lowry meant searching public and law enforcement databases for leads and to make sure and enter in any aliases and identifiers to those databases. He further explains, if you don't have the right name, the right identifiers, makes it nearly impossible for law enforcement to find suspects. Many times, the original people interviewed in that case don't give correct information. They give incomplete names or incorrect names, as they provide only a rough description. I look for the moment when a piece of information in a file or database jumps out at me. A matching set of prints or a photo, for instance. Even if I can't catch them this time, I update their information in the databases to increase the chances someone outside Harris County will be able to use it. One of the cases, which also happened to be the oldest of the 637 unsolved murder cases, was a woman named Mary Ann Rivera, whom had been on the run for 40 years for the murder of her husband. This is a small business plug. Please support small businesses. I would like to introduce you to an amazing online clothing store, The Well Clothing Boutique. Shop at thewellclothing.com for effortless and on-trend pieces to add to your closet. Plus, there's always free shipping. They carry sizes from small to 2XL, and you can also find your favorite piece of jewelry at The Well to jazz up your outfit. Check out their Instagram, at thewellclothing. On October 14, 1970, Marianne Rivera was in an argument with her husband, Cruz Rivera. A pan of hot grease was on the stove when the argument became more intense. Marianne further escalated events when she grabbed the handle of the pan of hot grease and threw it all over Cruz. He was transferred to the hospital with burns all over his body. He ended up dying three days later due to liver problems caused by the intense burns. Marianne Rivera was arrested and charged with murder by omission. This charge is explained as a person commits an offense if he intentionally, knowingly, recklessly, or with criminal negligence, by act, or intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly, by omission, causes to a child, elderly individual, or disabled individual, serious bodily injury, serious mental deficiency, impairment, or injury, or bodily injury. But this is actually a charge not valid in Texas any longer. Today, it would be most similar to the current law, of injury to a child, elderly individual, or disabled individual. After being brought to court, the judge allowed her a bond of $10,000, which she was able to make. Once out of jail, she took her three children and fled Houston. She ended up in Georgia, supporting her family waitressing. She was able to evade arrest because of two major factors. A missing date of birth for Marianne Rivera, and a lack of resources to conduct an intensive search for her. A date of birth is actually a key identifier to finding someone in modern law enforcement databases. The files on Marianne also didn't clarify exactly what happened after her arrest, which led Lowry to believe she had bailed out and disappeared. Lowry was able to find an offense report that included Cruz and Marianne's children's names, but unfortunately, just their first names. After a thorough analysis, he was successful at locating their full names and dates of birth. And in late 2009, he was able to find the address of one of her children in Georgia. Soon after, he found Marianne herself, but didn't pursue her right away deciding instead to just keep tabs on her for the next two years while piecing together all the evidence he could on the 41-year-old case. Lowry stated, It wasn't just locating her, it was trying to make sure that it was still a case. Once he felt he had enough to make a case in court, he had the Georgia's Lowndes County Sheriff's Office go to Mary Ann's apartment around August 2011 to ask her some questions about who she was and how her husband treated her. She said they got along, raised their kids, and indicated that her husband had slapped her once, but that was it. A month later, the officers returned to ask similar questions. But it wasn't until their third visit on October 11th, 2011, where they arrested Mary Ann Rivera. Lorraine Robertson, who had known Mary Ann for the past 25 years, said she knew nothing about her friend's past until the cops started coming around to question her. When the time came for them to arrest Mary Ann, Lorraine, along with another neighbor, helped to walk her out to the police car, later stating, I could feel her whole body trembling. We put her in the car. She cried. We all cried with her. Lorraine was also very curious as to why the police would be arresting Marianne now, so many years later, especially with all the health problems she had. She was in bad shape, with heart, back, and breathing problems. And due to her having an oxygen tank, she was unable to fly and instead had to be driven back to Houston, a little over an 11-hour trip. The prosecutor who would be taking on this case was Tina Ansari, who explained that the age of the case and possible witness issues could present obstacles as authorities proceed in bringing Mary Ann to trial, saying an old case is never an easy case. Donna Hawkins, the spokeswoman for the Harris County District Attorney's Office, said the defendant was charged with committing a rather brutal murder of her husband Although she was able to elude authorities for over 40 years, she ultimately must face judgment in a court of law for the murder of her husband. On October 21, 2011, Marianne Rivera was in court waiting to hear the judge declare a trial date for her case, which was to be in November. She was to remain in jail without bail. But things took another turn on November fourth when the judge who would be presiding over Marianne's case decided to dismiss all charges due to a lack of documented attempts to serve arrest warrants on Riviera in the 1970s and 1980s. The Public Defender's Office had also filed a motion to dismiss the charge under the constitutional right to a speedy trial, which holds that the state must show diligence in pursuing a case against a person who has been indicted. This was a contributing factor since too much time had passed between her indictment in November 1970 and her arrest in October 2011. Lowry said he doesn't like the court's ruling, but he understands it. A sense of justice was had today, he said. We put her before a court. She answered for her crimes. It did not say a crime did not occur or she did not commit it, but it just said that there were some due diligence issues, and that case was unique in and of itself. Continuing, he stated, The outcome of this case won't deter him from returning other fugitives to face justice in Harris County, no matter how much time has passed. Sadly, from my research, it looks like the cold case fugitive apprehension section of the Harris County District Attorney's Office disbanded between 2012 and 2013, after Patricia Lycos failed to be voted in for a second term. And a grand jury who spent six months looking into evidence collected by the Houston Police Department's troubled breath alcohol testing vehicles wrote an open letter that accused the district attorney's office was investigating them. This letter prompted the Texas Rangers to request a special prosecutor to look into these allegations. Patricia Lykos did admit that she asked for a cursory internet search, but not an investigation, as it is illegal to use confidential law enforcement databases for unauthorized investigations. But the grand jury for this case eventually decided not to indict her on these allegations. The good news is that other fugitive task forces have taken its place and in 2019, 27 of Texas' most wanted fugitives were captured, and of those 27, 10 fugitives were located outside Texas and extradited. I want to say a huge thank you to Houston News, Texas District and County Attorneys Association, USA Today, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for this first episode of Season 2 of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Please join me next week when I discuss male murderer from 1970 don't forget to subscribe rate and review my podcast as it really does help out if you have any questions or comments please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade@gmail.com. decade at gmail.com you can also find me on instagram at crimes of a decade pod and on twitter at crimes of a decade